in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. In your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Um, so, hello everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head. I'm Max Golding. We've got Harriet Fraud. Got Hi. a great show. Always got a great show. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, the the triumph of Joe Biden. Everybody, everybody's favorite person on planet Earth. Everybody loves Joe Biden. <laughs> so we wanted to have a discussion today about what Biden's presidency means for mental health. And if you've been listening to our show for a while, you know that we don't think about mental health as um, as something that's just in your head. It's not just something that therapists help you with. It's not something that just uh, drugs help you with. Mental health is kind of a holistic um, issue. So like housing and mental health are connected. Whether or not you are part of a union or a worker co-op at your job affects your mental health. Whether or not you have access to reliable transportation to get to your job or your loved ones, that's all mental health. So we're going to look at it holistically and see what we come up with. And we also, uh, anybody that has thoughts on this issue based off of just whatever is already in your head on the topic or based on what we have to say, email us, let us know, uh, you know, this will be an ongoing discussion as time goes on. So Harriet, just, just maybe just as a immediate reaction to the election, I mean, what's, what's your reaction generally and in relation to this question of what a Biden presidency might or might not mean for mental health? Well, I am very relieved that we've gone from fascism to neoliberalism. That doesn't mean that there's a no-holds-barred jubilation here, because if he returns to what we had during Obama, which really engendered the rage on the part of so many people as income was shifted up instead of down, then after Biden may come another Trump. And so therefore, I'm apprehensive, but at the same time, relieved. I would much rather have neoliberalism than fascism. However, it's not a no-holds-barred joy fest for me. And I feel pretty similarly. Um, I feel like a mix of relief and hope and disappointment kind of all at the same time. Mm. You know, um, I think, like, I feel like most of, well, and at the same time, we haven't really talked about this extensively, but I, I've been thinking for a long time about how, like, I kind of understand where Trump supporters are coming from sometimes mm, in a in a weird in a weird way. Um, not that I think like Trump's policies or his affect or anything are great, but I think that uh, a lot of the the support for Trump over the years is it it isn't just these like rabid, like brain worm racists or whatever that people say. Like there there are that is that's a part of the base. Um, mm. for Trump. But a lot of them are, I think, like disaffected. Um, there's a lot of working class folks from deindustrialized parts of America. Like if, when you look at just the split, like the, the hair split, just barely-ness of Biden winning, mm. uh, a lot of those people, there's some just schadenfreude against, I think, Biden and liberals in general, that they're just like, we hate liberals, we hate Biden, we hate these demonic uh, Democrats or whatever. Um but I guess I kind of feel for them, too, because a, a lot of us on the left are saying, OK, Biden's not going to be good enough, but we're relieved Trump Trump is gone. But there's actually millions of Americans that are also uh, counter to our perspective. They're terrified of what's going to happen now, too, which is kind of an interesting, you know, flip perspective, right? <laughs> um, that they're they're now going to be in this like hyper uh, vigilant um maybe like a hysteria, you know, thinking uh, Biden's going to take away my guns and, and I don't know, whatever else. Whatever other so. propaganda that Trump spewed. I think also, aside yeah. from the the gun love, is really in a kind of love of a penis extender. These are men who have been <laughs> deprived of their lofty position that they had as providers for dependent women and children. Now yeah. they can no longer do that. A man is no longer the king of his castle. The majority of divorces are initiated by women, and so are the refusals to be married in the first place. Marriage right. has become more of a luxury good that these guys can't afford. 
And therefore, right. they're very angry and feel unmanned. And if you care about that vision of manhood as the boss, within that vision they are. There's a hope, of course, that I have, and I know you share, Max, that people will be people rather than men and women. They'll be humans mm -hmm. together rather than gendered in polar ways. But also I feel for Trump's minions, some of them, because they are surrounded, as we all are, by the Wall Street swamp. Mm -hmm. And I think Trump speaks to their reality of rage, where they just want to bust up the government. Mm -hmm. And he does say, you know, you've been duped, you've been tricked. It's fake news. And a lot of the news is fake. And they have mm -hmm. been tricked. They've believed in an American dream, which is not available to them anymore because they have inferior education and few supports and none of the supports that their European counterparts have. They don't have guaranteed paid vacations. We don't have any. They don't have mm -hmm. maternity and paternity leave. They don't have any. They don't have job security. They don't have powerful unions and they mm -hmm. feel dispossessed and Trump captured the rage at being dispossessed, even though he made it worse for them all on every front. Right. It's an emotional thing that he did for them. And people's emotional survival, their sense that there's somebody and there's hope, hmm. is stronger than their physical survival because, you know, they're breathing in putrid air, they're drinking contaminated water, they're eating food full of pesticides, they don't have the supports they need in their families, but he is telling them they're somebody. In fact, they're great. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be great again. In other words, they're going to be male dominant 1950s again, which of course is fake. Well, and also because there aren't, there aren't the same government subsidies for all that, that, that used to exist. And right. so, you know, it's, it's like a weird kind of scam. Um, I wanted to shift real, well, this is a, uh, it's on topic and it segues a little bit, but um, there's, I was reading um, Ben Burgess's article on Jacobin um, called uh, No Honeymoon for Joe Biden. And he kind of breaks down in the beginning, <clears throat> some of the uh, essentially like promises or platform items on the Biden-Harris website um, that actually sound really progressive. And they sound like kind of um, ways that, that maybe some of these larger scale societal problems could get solved. And they actually sound kind of like, almost like Bernie type of things um, and for us to maybe dig into this a little bit. So, um, so the website, I don't know if it said, if it says it now, but it, it had said during the campaign trail um, that Biden wants to make community colleges tuition free, uh, wants to create a public option to compete with private health insurance companies mm -hmm. and to allow workers to unionize through a simple and easy card check process, which is basically just, it's a way easier way to unionize your workplace than the current uh, than the current method, which is just arduous and, and kind of an uphill battle. Um, so, you know, if he were able to, to make that happen for workers, that would just insanely boost labor's membership and power. Um, so those are just three options that Ben Burgess kind of, uh, picks out to say, uh, I think to try to give Biden the benefit of the doubt a little bit to say like, well, Hey, he's actually running on, some pretty progressive policy. Not every policy sounds super progressive, but those are some relatively progressive um, ideas. Um, and he goes on to say what I'd probably argue and you'd probably argue, Harriet, which is that we actually don't have much of a reason to trust him, to trust that he's going to get mm -hmm. any of that done. Um, you know, and, and like, even if let's say the runoff between Ossoff and I forgot the other person's name, but let's say the Democrats do end up taking the Senate you know, we saw from when, um, you know, you had a blue, you know, president, Senate, House, like all the way up and down the government uh, during Obama's years <clears throat> that virtually nothing got done. Right. Um, I mean, virtually nothing progressive that I think, you know, like Bernie came out and he was just like, here's the progressive platform. And, you know, the left came out and said, oh, finally, uh, something that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But Obama got basically none of that done. So, I mean, do we have any reason to think that Biden unilaterally as this... Uh, not even hugely charismatic leader, but as the guy that's not Trump, that he, that he will do make any progress for us in terms of uh, better access to college, uh, better health care, 
basically decriminalizing labor. <laughs> Essentially, right. do, is he going to do any of these things? Is he going to try? Is he going to pretend? I mean, what do you think? Well, his history indicates that he has no separate interest in that. He mm-hmm. is, has been elected from a state whose basic industry is tax breaks for corporations. That's what attracts them and gives them prosperity. Plus, he has voted misogynistically against Anita Hill and in a racist fashion for incarceration, which is another way of creating slavery for black people. And yet, you know, he isn't Donald Trump. He's not a fascist. Were he pushed to the left by a well-organized left, by a socialist party, then he couldn't do what Democrats always do, which is they suggest to people that they will do wonderful things like maternity, paternity leaves, community colleges, Mm -hmm. ending student debt. And then when they get in office, they do the same kind of thing, not as radically as the Republicans. They also are much better on social things. There are more, there are fewer racial biases so that if you were rich enough or at the very top 1% and could be recognized, you would get a break and be able to go to a decent school. However, the class structure remains the same and the mass of Americans remain immiserated. And that's true black or white. Black people got a lot poorer under Obama because he Mm. decided to bail out the banks and corporations rather than the homeowners who had been sold subprime mortgages, so Mm. who were overwhelmingly minority. So that it really depends on a movement from below. I don't think Mm. Biden would have people shot in the street for protesting Mm. or doing other left organizing, and that's a great progress from Mm. Trump. But I think that without those organizations, those promises are hollow and will never be fulfilled. They're already trying to blame not expanding their hold on Congress and not expanding their Senate role fast and far enough. They're blaming it on the progressives. 38% of their vote was black people, not rich black people, but black people who are suffering and who are poor. And... Mm -hmm. They want to turn around and blame things like defund the police or Medicare Mm -hmm. for all for their losses. No, Bernie would have won because he would have won Trump's voters. And the reason he didn't is that Lloyd Blankfein and the others at the top in Goldman Sachs and Morgan Chase said, if you do that, you won't get the money. You can't have two corporate parties that both represent the employer class. Somebody has to represent the employees. And the Democrats pretend to do that when they want to get elected. And some people do that. AOC does that. The squad expanded. It doubled. There are now four other people. There's Mondaire Jones. There's Richie Torres. There's Cori Bush. And there's Jamal Bowman. And so three out of those four are men, mm-hmm. black or Latino men. And these are progressive people. Richie Torres has been amazing in New York City. And so has Jamal Bowman. And they're also represented by the Democratic Socialists of America. And it's really time, I think, that if there's a real possibility of a left socialist party, Biden will have to move. But other than that, he'll do what they've all done from Clinton on, promise the world and deliver a depression in the standard of living. So that's what I think. Here's here's a few snaps, some some wiggly fingers. No, I, I yeah. agree with all that. I think that the key thing I'm kind of hearing from you is that um, – the need for the a push from the bottom, essentially. And, you know, what's funny is I think, I mean, Bernie always, Bernie had said this all along too, that he, he wouldn't be able to unilaterally achieve much of anything, you know? Right. I mean, like, a, you know, there's executive orders that presidents can sign, but I mean, I think most like actually 
democratically minded presidents probably don't want to actually sign executive orders to begin with. Um, like somebody like Bernie wouldn't have actually wanted to just, you know, okay, let's get Medicare for all through an executive order. I don't even know if it's possible. Um, but also just the way that the electoral map is set up from gerrymandering to the electoral college to all the weird labyrinthine, um, probably overtly bizarre systems in which our, our so-called democracy works is that, um, you can't, you can't just get some new policy push through because you ran on it on a campaign, you know? Um, it gets people excited, like even something like Medicare for all or tuition free college or, you know, you name it, you know, universal health care, I don't know, like massive funding for public housing. Um, you do need like a really uh, strong popular base to actually, um, whether it's get out in the streets and say we demand the thing or incessant calling to representatives. Um, there was another article uh, by Jackman by uh, Lisa Featherstone and um the title of it was there was actually a lot of good news for the left on election day. And you touched on some of that, like the squad kind of doubling in size. There also were a lot of really interesting things that happened. Like, um, so even though Florida voted for Trump, they passed a resolution to increase the minimum wage by 15 bucks an hour. And it was, I think it was around 60% of the vote. So, I mean, there were a ton of probably Republicans that actually voted for that, or maybe, maybe conservative people, or maybe people that just didn't really they were maybe non-voters or, or sort of politically apathetic or burnt out or something that turned out in, in massive numbers to get a, you know, $15 minimum wage for Florida. And there were a lot of things like that. There was like marijuana legalization. Um, Arizona passed a statewide tax hike to bring a billion dollars in new funding to the school system. Um, there were actually a ton of progressive kind of down ballot um, initiatives and, um, and smaller scale, um, elections that, you know, D I think DSA won the endorsed candidates that they were pushing. They, I think they won like 70 to 80% of the, the people they were pushing for. So yeah, so there are some, there's some really good signs, you know, those are, those are signs there of sure good things are. to come, I think. And these are signs of people organizing. I just, mm -hmm. one of the things that blew me away was what happened in Portland, Maine, they had referendum questions, six of them, five of them passed. And some of them that passed was minimum wage. And in times of COVID, when work is dangerous, $22 an hour, time and a half, it passed in Portland, Maine. They nice. banned yeah. facial surveillance by law enforcement. They implemented a Green New Deal for Portland. They mm -hmm. capped rent increases to the rate of inflation and no more. Yep. They, they um, allowed marijuana businesses to expand. Mm -hmm. They lost one progressive thing because it was misadvertised, which was a tax on short-term rentals because it was presented as poor black people renting a room in their house and they ought to be allowed to. It was clever mm -hmm. on the part of Airbnb and VRBO. Right. However, five out of the six won, and they won mm. because of organizing in Portland, Maine, by DSA and People First Portland, who had been mm. working on these things and going door to door, like the squad, which is now eight people, went door yeah. to door. And mm. that's their people's politicians. They want to talk to them. They don't want right. to wait for three and a half or three and three quarters years and then put out some TV ads sponsored by rich people. Yeah. So there were very hopeful signs. And also I think we do have to respect that it's hopeful that Biden won in spite of the gerrymandering that the Republicans managed to achieve, mm -hmm. in spite of kicking a lot of people off the voter rolls, in spite of putting polling places far away from poor and poor black neighborhoods and in spite of all the shenanigans they've pulled so that Biden's mm. vote is more impressive, even though it was close, mm. because it overcame all the roadblocks. The, the Republicans don't try to recruit voters anymore. They try to block people they don't want to vote instead. And they've been working right. very hard at that. Right. So, you know, and a lot can be done those are very impressive things in Portland, Maine, mm -hmm. even though Maine voted for Trump. 
They voted. Right. They pushed these things. They worked on these things. They organized around these things. They talked to people. And they want mm-hmm. a wildly progressive state, you know, mm-hmm. status. They're the mm-hmm. only place where during COVID, workers are guaranteed $22 an hour. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really impressive. And I so to bring it back to the mental health question, because I feel like sometimes I, I can imagine being a listener if you're just jumping on board with our, our program and saying like, wait a second, why are these yeah. mental health professionals talking about all this? Like, that's not mental health. So maybe just to clarify a little bit our position yeah. right now. So I'll kind of clarify mine. You can clarify yours. That they're Good. probably more or less the same. Is that the reason... I think Harry and I are really excited about these things because these none of this is actually mental health policy. Like zero of what we just talked about is mental health policy, right? Um, mental health policy would be stuff like more funding for like, I don't know, mental hospitals or um, mental community health mental health clinics. centers or right. mental health clinics, opioid methadone clinics, uh, more staff for suicide hotlines or domestic violence shelter beds or I don't know. You, you can... There's, you know, all that stuff. You, we could get more expansive on that if you want. And better better trainings for mental health workers. I don't know. Um, th- I think the reason I'm not focused on that, I almost, I don't want to say I don't care about it. I do care about it very much. Um, but is that if you think about mental health holistically, like, like so for example, um, think, think rent control for a minute. Um, without rent control, if you have like zero regulation on what a, a big kind of commercial real estate industrial model can do to, to human beings. If you think there's a regular uh, working class neighborhood and uh, a bunch of big landlords decide we're just going to hike the rents by like 50% or something because um, we really need to get these profit margins up. You know, we just, the guys up top, the shareholders are saying we need to pull more profits. Okay. We need to figure out a way to kick people the hell out of their homes and we, you know, just, we don't care where the hell they'll go. They'll figure it out. Uh, we need to get people with more money to, start renting these units. So we need to, we're going to put notices on their doors. We're going to have these large uh, construction machines outside doing quote unquote renovations, just going to make their lives hell until they leave. And then, or maybe we'll actually just figure out ways to physically remove them from the buildings. If you actually think about the mental health experience of uh, a family or just some individual or a couple living in one of these units, and I've been one of these people, it is, it, it is like PTSD induced, like actual kind of PTSD inducing. Um, finding that you don't, especially if you live in an urban area where it's hard to find another place to live. Um, so in absence of rent control, landlords actually can do that kind of thing, especially the kind of the big commercial real estate industry thing. So that's just housing. That's just talking about housing as one issue. That's very much a mental health issue, right? So you get rent and there's, there's huge debates on rent control. Not everybody, you know, I think like most mainstream economists actually oppose rent control, but, but the point is, um, if you actually put that in place, it gives a sense of security. It's almost like an anti-anxiety uh, intervention mm-hmm. for renters that suddenly can say, okay, we know for a fact that this, based on this new law, this landlord cannot hike the rents by next year. Right. That means we can do maybe a little bit of financial planning. Like we know that we're not going to have to put more aside for some huge rent thing. You know, you got a single mom saying like, thank God I can stay here at least another one to two years. So I can, you know, cause the rent's decent here. Right. And it's somewhere close. It's somewhat close to my job. So, uh, so just talking about say rent control on on a as a state ballot initiative or so like a municipal law or something like that. Like to me, that's that's in that's cut and dry. That is a mental health issue. Like to me, you know, um, and and you can kind of go down the line from like minimum wage, right? So in Florida, again, Florida as a state voted for Trump, but roughly sixty percent of voters voted yes for uh, the the uh, fifteen fifteen dollar minimum wage. Right. So fight for 15 campaign, which has been hugely labor led. I think SEIU has been kind of leading that for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's finally becoming mainstream. Uh, the kind of corporate Dem people in Florida were kind of they weren't pushing that. They weren't running on it. They lost. But now that's going to be the minimum wage in Florida. It'll probably be incremental. It probably won't be overnight. But but again, you know, workers that are getting like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 bucks an hour. Or, or less. Or I don't seven. even know what the minimum wage is. Yeah, or yeah. seven or whatever. You know, knowing, okay, like my wages are actually going to be not like insanely good, but mm-hmm. much better, you know, by the end of next year or whatever. That is really good for somebody's mental health, right? Because low wages and, and economic insecurity is, is just not good for the level of uncertainty in your life. If you don't know if you're going to be able to pay rent next month or 
you know, you have to choose between rent and food or your student loan payments and food. Those are all mental health issues. So anyway, that's my rant on why I think all this stuff is very directly linked to mental health. So, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. We are in the midst of an unchecked pandemic. If that pandemic had been checked as it was in Taiwan, as it was in New Zealand, and I'm as it was even in the biggest, the greatest population country in the world, China, it was stopped. And it was stopped because they used science and they tested everyone, millions upon millions in China, billions of people, and mm -hmm. tracked them and treated them. If you can get medical treatment, quality Medicare for all, a huge worry is gone. There, there's a book by Tyagi and Elizabeth Wyatt, uh, Warren. Tyagi is the last name of Warren's daughter. And mm -hmm. it talks about the three reasons that people go bankrupt. The number one reason is medical bills. Mm -hmm. Then the second one is divorce. And the third one is unemployment. But mm -hmm. medical bills are a huge shadow over people. Mm -hmm. And they're life-threatening. You have to go to a doctor. And if you can't, you die. These are mm -hmm. mental health issues. Right. And when I when you were talking before Max I was thinking about how the Kushners Jared Kushner's complex in Maryland found a way a loophole so they can evict people during COVID. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for those evicted people's mental health? Right. As it is, child battery is associated with poverty and overcrowding. Yep. Because when there are so many strains on you, you're more likely to explode into violence than if you have fewer strains and you have money to get therapy. Mm -hmm. And a mental health benefit would be community mental health centers with therapy, family therapy, child therapy, adult therapy, couple therapy available to people, mm -hmm. as well as groups to talk about and empower them in their struggles for end to evictions, reasonable rentals, and for a socialist program, which is actually a mental health program, of making the five basic needs, taking them out of capitalism, just like they take out armaments, mm -hmm. you know, and they stockpile them. Trump did, sold all our pandemic supplies to make money, but he doesn't sell all our guns. We have a stockpile that's bigger than that of all six next to most armed countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So if you have these priorities of clean air, which creates mental health because you can breathe and don't have asthma, <laughs> of clean water, because you're not always threatened with lead and other poisons from your water, like they were in Flint, Michigan, of mm -hmm. safe, affordable housing, shelter, of education, that's quality education, not depending on how much money you have. And now under the pandemic, at least 40% of kids aren't getting any education because their parents don't have the net because they live in rural areas where it's not available because nobody's there to help them with a glitch on their computer and so on. But these, these things plus safe, healthy food not laced with pesticides mm -hmm. should be taken off the capitalist marketplace. And that would contribute enormously to people's mental health because they wouldn't be getting sick and always threatened. They'd be right. safe. Safety is very important. A sense of being safe, a sense of having a home, a sense of being mm -hmm. able to be settled and those things are taken away in a rapacious capitalism like ours. And they can be changed and mitigated by a group struggle, which will have enormous 
psychological, excuse me, benefits, not only because people will be safer, but also because they'll be connecting with each other with a hope of transforming their lives because two pillars of mental health are a sense of connection and belonging with other people mm-hmm. and a sense of hope rather than mm-hmm. despair. And so that organizing and accomplishing these needs has the mental health benefit of giving people connection and help. And that ties this all together, showing that it's not just in your head, even though what was done to you as a child is relevant, but it sure doesn't take up all the space of relevance. And that's what Max and I are trying to get across. So there we are. That's why we are mental health professionals talking about these broad, holistic, systemic level issues in conjunction with the presidential election. Um, I want to I want to speak uh, briefly on to I think um, something that kind of saddens me, but it is just the way it is in our mass media kind of driven society. Is that I think I don't know if this is true for most voters, and although I I do tend to think that most ordinary people are are actually really smart. Um, mm but are treated like they're idiots. Um, but because people are treated like idiots, the, the main focus tends to be sort of perform performativity and affect with, you know, political contenders. And it actually isn't so much on policy. Although I'd say that the, the socialist surge is very policy focused. It's mm. saying like, you know, we're talking about the actual issues and specifics of how we want to implement different policies. Um, but I think one, uh, one thing that I'll just continue to be sad about, I think, as, as time goes on, is that I think um, a lot of people voted for Biden because of the performativity and affect problems they had with Trump, meaning he would say a terrible thing, he would tweet a terrible thing, the way he said the thing sounded kind of racist or sexist, whatever, and it just sort of like stirred up something, uh, it, it, it felt not right in terms of like virtue and morality and stuff and people. And so it was like, well, Biden's not as bad as that guy or whatever. So I just want to get that out of my system to say, um, I I'm, I'm hoping if you're a listener, who's, if you're a little bit more, maybe passively political or you don't check out the policies or whatever, do, do try to look into that stuff a little bit more because, um, Biden not being Trump doesn't make him good inherently. And, and a, a candidate who, um, I mean, even even the way that Bernie was, if you're like a Bernie fan, the way Bernie was constructing language was not going to guarantee that he'd be able to build a broad-based coalition to actually get the policies that he was calling for either, right? Even though he seems, for a lot of leftists, seems like a great um, person. Same with AOC, right? Um, so I don't think we should expect everyone to sit around and have reading groups on like the actual nuts and bolts, like the finances of the policies, like, well, how would Medicare for all work or whatever, but we all need to look into those things a little bit more so we can have like a competent discussion about like, what are the actual policies we want? Like, what's the point of having a politician in a seat of power to be able to pass a law or whatever, or not pass a law? Like, what are the actual laws and policies we want? Um, so based on that, maybe another segue, if you're okay with this, Harriet, is the going into the specifics of mental health based off of what Biden has said, because I think we could probably take a, a brief stab at this. Mm-hmm. Um, if we think that these policies are good or not good, or if we actually believe that he'll be able to make movement in these areas. So from a, a website called um, mentalhealthforus.net, I don't know a whole lot about them. They're probably just some nonprofit organization doing mental health advocacy. Um, their first question is about suicide for him. Um, they're saying suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., second leading cause of death for American youth. Every day, 20 veterans die by suicide. What steps would you take to prevent it? Um, and so they have this, there's a series of questions. It's almost 20. It's like, I don't know. It's 12 questions. They're kind of long, so I'm not going to read every one. But with this one, um, he Biden answered the question saying that he is going to, so in particular for veteran suicide, um, within the first 200 days in office, he's going to publish a comprehensive public health and cross-sector approach to address suicide in veterans, service members, and families. He's going to work aggressively to facilitate immediate access to mental health services for veterans, eliminate wait times. And there's a few, there's a few other things. There's another thing that says like disseminate high quality treatments for PTSD. Um, just my, my immediate thing is to, is to say, um, 
so I think on the campaign trail, especially these days, people are talking about things like veterans, suicides, mental health, and PTSD a lot more because it's a really massive issue. But I tend to feel a little bit skeptical when I hear politicians talk about it. And the reason for that is there is there doesn't seem to be a contextual discussion about why veterans, why PTSD, and why suicide. And to me, that means it's because they're not talking about the military industrial complex. They're not talking mm. about war. Um, they're not talking about the culture of the military, which is really brutal. Um, and that, mm. you know, the U.S. military is kind of like the most socialist, uh, one of the most socialist programs in the U.S. in that if you do enlist and you do a certain amount of time, you basically have, you know, you have health care for life. You have access to all kinds of public services. And they're not. There, people critique like the the vet um, the vet centers and the the quality of the um, I forgot what they're called. Um, I'm getting a the VA a hospitals. The VA hospitals. That's right. Yeah, the VA. Um, I mean, my uncle's a vet, and like he's you know he he says it depends. Like there's some that are really great. There's some that aren't great. But like, why would vets have such high PTSD? <laughs> why mm. would suicide be so high? Like, I would actually rather have that conversation about mental health because if you start from the perspective of like, well, well, if you ignore the fact that we're still, we still have like however many military bases around the world and that we're still over either directly over a hundred and we're either directly or indirectly involved in some kind of occupation war. or like, like hybrid war or like we're funding one side and some, mm. you know, some of it's super covert. You only hear about it 20 years later. Um, to me, that's a big part of the puzzle, if not the cause for why, <laughs> Right. <laughs> For why? So, you know, I guess I think it's a good, you know, sure, let's get more help for vets, but let's also stop sending people off to wars. Let's stop. Uh, I just, I think like defunding the military would actually be an important part of this policy, but it's nowhere on yes. the website. That's true. It should be not totally defunding, but we don't have to have seven times more armaments than everyone else while we've lost or come to a draw on every single war after World War II because we didn't win right. Vietnam, we didn't win Korea, and we haven't won anything else except mm -hmm. on the tiny island of Grenada we won, but it's a, you know smaller than Rhode Island, so what are we talking about? However, right. there's another thing we could look at when we look at PTSD and the VA, and of course veterans should get help. They shouldn't be put in a position right. of fighting an unjust war against the united people of that society and slaughtering them. But also one of the reasons that they go mad and commit suicide when they get home is the one thing they got from the military is a sense of camaraderie and connection mm -hmm. with the men and women with whom they fought every day. And then they go home to their families and they don't have anything like that solidarity and support. Right. Because families are abandoned and trying to deal with the world that this kid has been in that they don't understand at all. The mm -hmm. outrageous loneliness of the United States is a huge mental health problem because one in four Americans doesn't have anyone to talk to, even in the worst most needful period of their lives. So how can we connect people around building an America they believe in, which should be mm -hmm. a mental health program? Because political or social activism, even if it's just PTAs or blood drives, it's doing mm -hmm. something you believe in with other people is a mm -hmm. basic pillar of mental stability. And that should be included in our field. I think there's something else about military culture from not just my uncle, I had a couple of uncles and my dad was briefly in the Marines and just my understanding of it from not being in the military is that there's, it's such a different culture than the non-military, like military families will often um, talk about like, just kind of basically if you're not in the military, if you're not a military family, like you don't get it. Sometimes they, they almost self-segregate because they're like, these people don't understand us. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that to me is it has to do with discipline and hierarchy. So there are two major elements of it where there's, there's such a clear um, chain of command between like different commanders, lieutenants, you know, like all the different mm -hmm. ranks and that it right. is, it's, it's, it's expected that you are 
compliant. If somebody in the hierarchy above you tells you to do something, mm-hmm. you typically just, you don't even question it. You just right. do it. Um, and whether or not that's right or wrong, I don't, not even to comment on that necessarily. Um, that is just very much not what our culture is. I mean, in, in a workplace, it's a little bit like that. Um, but at least you have some rights. Like, I don't know, you can go to the labor board or something like that, but there's no like labor board in the military. I'm pretty sure no. there's, there's like the, you know, the guy tells you to do it, you do it. Um, and the level of discipline of like getting up at the crack of dawn, the way you have to make your bed, the way you have to tie your shoes and everything. Um, so I think there's a certain, um, it's actually not too dissimilar to what I understand about prisons, to be honest, which is that once you get out, there's a certain, um, you feel so alienated from everybody because most people around you were not in the military. And all of a sudden, um, you're like very alone, you know, and you might have Mm -hmm. your family, like maybe your family kind of gets it. Um, but also the way that you you're you're typically trained in um, in boot camp, and I don't know what things are beyond boot camp, but that they they do kind of psychologically break you down. I mean, they um, yes, they're they're like verbally and emotionally very abusive to you. Sometimes yes. there's actually full on physical abuse. It's like being jumped into a gang, um, and, and so you have you to psych- be up all night, many nights, right. and run and so on. Right. So there's just, there's, there's a context, you know, I don't, sometimes I think there's this sort of special status put on veterans where it's like, oh, we need to help the veterans. Like, yeah, absolutely. But we need to actually question why vets in particular have it so bad. And that's because of the way the military is set up. And we don't, we don't need to have a military as big as it is. We we need to probably shrink it down. We need to shrink it down, but also the military is as big as it is. And as many people sign up because it's about the only job an awful lot of people can get. And then a third of them get PTSD because they're invading people who don't want them. They're Mm -hmm. shooting civilians in a way that's terrifying. They're risking their lives for nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. terrifying. And yet they have the solidarity of living with other people all the time and Mm -hmm having a camaraderie which they desperately need and which is missing at home. Right. Well, so that's uh, that's just the first of 11 questions. I'm just going to look at the, the, the <laughs> next two and we can kind of get into those. But the, the second question they have for Biden is, every hour, eight people in America die of drug overdose from opioids and increasingly from other drugs as well. What would your administration do to turn the tide? And, you know, there's some good kind of fancy words, increased funding for stuff. And, uh, but then one of the things there says, hold accountable big pharmaceutical companies, executives, and others responsible for their role in triggering the opioid crisis. I don't personally believe that like almost at all. Um, I don't see, I don't see Biden doing that. Like as president, I I don't think he'd sign an executive order. I don't think he'd, build a big democratic coalition. Um, I mean, so many corporate Democrats are funded very, very heavily by big pharma. So I don't, um, or they're influenced by the the hospital lobby, which is uh, just the healthcare lobby generally is, is hugely funded by big pharma. So I don't see that as realistic personally. Um, You know, it would be good to allocate more public funding to programs for opioid use. But um, I think another, another key piece here is like, you know, why, why have those addictions gone up so much? And obviously there's the, like you've mentioned, Harriet, the direct to consumer ads is an enormous problem. Um, he, there's no mention of that. Like, like why, why are people even told that there's certain drugs available to them? And then all of a sudden they, they think they should go ask their doctor for the drugs. Um, that's an enormous problem. So that's sort of like a media reform issue. Um, then, and, and one, one other thing I'll say is just like attachment trauma that I think, um, you, 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 you need to have some void inside of you to want to seek uh, hard drugs to self-medicate. And part of that, I think, is because of um, the decline of the American, the American economy, the American family, and the ability for parents to actually raise their kids and build healthy attachment. Like this is sort of, a sort of decades ongoing crisis. Um, and you, ne- you need a lot more socialism in place to actually address that. Um, you need universal health care and housing and child care to address those things. And Biden's not talking about those. So no, uh, he's also not talking about the unified assault on people's bodies presented mm-hmm. by the unity of the hospitals, which bankrupt people 
the doctors with their inflated fees and their regulation of how many people can go to medical school so they won't Mm -hmm. have competition on their prices. The insurance companies that bilk people and want to give them as little as they can for their money and leave them with big bills. And the pharmaceutical who put out drugs in order to make money and the drugs often kill people. But just as in the case of Zyprexa, in which the drug companies like Johnson & Johnson had to pay almost a billion dollars, one of their representatives, when asked, laughed and he said, hey, when you're racing towards 17 billion, which is what they made through the misuse of that drug, you pay the traffic ticket. Mm-hmm. So they can get sued for some millions of dollars or even a billion. But if they're making 17 billion, that's the object, not helping people mm-hmm. making money. And so we'd have to take those things on which people's lives depend outside of the marketplace. So you'd have to end market-based health care and have that be a basic need provided by Medicare for all or public health care, as it is in every other developed country. We're very backward that way. And that would be a mental health care problem because you'd get yeah. mental health care there, but you'd also get relief from being bilked when you're the most vulnerable because you're ill. Yeah. So these are, I think the main takeaway for this for listeners, I guess, is these are really multifaceted issues. And, mm. you know, again, we're not, neither of us are like anti-Biden. It's just good to to think critically, like where, you know, yeah, we should have some relief and some hope for those of us that are like anti-Trump and we're happy that Trump's going to be gone, assuming yes. some insane coup doesn't happen or something. Um, but even the stuff that he has written down here and on his website, they don't, well, they don't give me personally a lot of hope in that I don't think he'll be able to with with one pen stroke mm-hmm. actually do any of the things he's talking about um it, it looks like really well packaged language that was probably fed to him by the DNC through focus groups and crap that they did and it sounds really good I just I don't think that he'll really do much or any of these things and I just think the context is too broad um and and um just the concept of mental health being viewed as like a singular issue is kind of mm-hmm. an issue that's uh, true because these these issues as you're saying max are intertwined and they need to be addressed by a totalistic Mm -hmm. environment which is that we Mm -hmm. have to end market forces Mm -hmm. on the basic needs of human beings for care for shelter for healthy food for clean water Mm -hmm. and all of those things for child care And that those are an anti-capitalist program, and that has nothing to do with Biden. That has to come from a Socialist Party initiative. That's right. Uh, do we? It's probably a good time to close. I mean, do you have any final thoughts on the whole Biden-Trump president 2000 ele- 2020 election? Well, my final thought is it shows us we have a chance, and we can regain a lot of mental health by joining together connecting with hope and make and changing this. Yeah. Changing market-driven healthcare of every and life care on every level. That's right. And in vain of that comment we're making on how the bottom has to kind of push up and uh, make Biden do stuff. Also make your city council do stuff, make your county board of supervisors do stuff, your state government do stuff, senators, Congress people, uh, make your boss do stuff, you know, unionize yeah. your workplace, make your landlord do stuff, join a tenants union. Um, there are a lot of ways to get connected, probably mm-hmm. wherever you are, you know, even if you're in some r- rural area in the middle of nowhere, That's there's right. groups out there, there's people to connect to. Um, and, you know, as the, the theme with our show is try to get connected and, um, you know, stay active as much as you can. And there's hope in that, in doing that together. There's hope and connection. Mm-hmm. So we'll all be happier people, more mentally yeah, um, healthy. And if you want, oh, and so uh, if if you want some uh, 
some top secret, can't find it anywhere else. Um, <laughs> uh, Harriet Fraud doing uh, German impressions to sound like Dr. Sigmund Freud, become a patron. There's, there's our marketing pitch. Right. Uh, go to, <laughs> go to patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. Uh, become a patron. Um, you can do like the cheap, uh, the cheaper, like three bucks a month one that you just, you get like, I forgot even what we have on there. And then there's like six and it goes up different tiers. Um, it really does help us to kind of subsidize it because um, it does take some work to do the podcast. So there's our pitch for that. And it and, takes um, money too. And so we, right. and we welcome you, whether you could pay or not, we welcome your listener, your listening. Mm-hmm. But if you can yeah. help us, then we'll give you extra hugs and prizes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, we also, I mean, we're not like, cause we're not into like, give us money in order for us to like care about what you have to say. We read every single email you send us. We try to respond to every single one. And, um, sometimes we like to, if we think there's a really interesting question, we try to read it on air. If you are a patron and you have a question, we like definitely will read it on air and we'll discuss it. Um, and also we're, we're really open to guests. Like you don't have to be some extremely fancy, important, quote unquote, important person. Like we'll, you know, Everyday people we're cool with, uh, as long as you're like good speaker, you have good ideas. Um, so feel free to contact us. Any thoughts, questions, comments, criticisms at it's not just in your head at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.